timing with all of the words that I say. I've been doing this thing every night and all day, and the lights just went out. There's nothing I see. If you turn them back on, all the kids will see me. If you don't, I will sit in the darkness. I'll stop now. I'll just keep going. Um, we talked night one with this big question. What is truth? It's perverted in our culture. What does it really mean? Can we really say something is right, something is wrong, something is good, something is bad? Or is everything relative? If you think it's good, it's good. If you think it's bad, it's bad. If they think it's nice, it's nice. If they think it's wrong, it's wrong. Everyone gets their own opinion, which is a beautiful sentiment, except and until two people look at the same situation from two different points of view. When this person thinks that doing this action is good and this person thinks that doing this action is wrong, who wins? What is the absolute ultimate truth? Who is the absolute ultimate truth? We looked at who God is. We looked at the truth of the scriptures. We looked at Jesus' life and ministry last night, that there will come a time for all of us where we must decide, do we follow this theoretical version of a Jesus that we've created in our own mind, or do we follow the Jesus of the Bible? And do we have the faith that it takes to stand and say, God, you're going to disappoint at times. You're going to fall short of my expectations at times. You're, I'm going to be disillusioned and think differently at certain times. But at the end of the day, do we stand with Peter and say, where else would I go? Or do we throw out the baby with the bathwater and as soon as Jesus disappoints us, we go a new direction. We go a new course in our life. This is where the question of Christianity is found. And tonight we talk about the reason Jesus came. The reason Jesus came was for this grand act of redemption. Redemption means to buy back his people, which begs the question, if we need to be bought back, then who currently owns us? Who's our slave master? Who's in control of us? These are the questions we, that we have to ask. If God came for a big act of redemption, then what's our current status if we're not found in it? We're talking about that tonight. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of John chapter 8. So turn with me in your Bibles at John chapter 8. By the end of this week, we'll, we will have at least skimmed over this whole book to, get a, to kind of get a good picture of who Jesus is. And once again, like I promised you from night one, I'm gonna, this, tonight's going to be no exception. It's going to be difficult. I know for a lot of you guys, last night was really heavy. I promise you it was really heavy for me too. I hate telling that story every time. But I also feel like God has used it over these last 11 months, even in moments where I feel reluctant to it, to say, it's almost like God says, Chris, I want you to walk through there and I want you to tell of my goodness in the middle of your faithlessness and your brokenness and your misguided confusion. I still want you to tell them about my love. And so um, thank you guys for that. It's, it's, like a, it's obviously a deeply personal thing in my life, and it's scary to talk about. And it hurts. And almost after every time I do that, I just go back to my room and cry because and it just sucks. But there's a God who's very real in this walk with God and this race with God and this marathon with God and this pain that we'll experience through life with God. It's worth living in him. It really is worth it. I want you to know that. John chapter 8. This is a crazy story. Okay. So here's what happens. We see a woman who is caught in adultery, okay? So especially in this day and age, in Jewish custom and Jewish law, today adultery isn't even illegal, right? Adultery means there's two people who are married, 
And one of them decides they are going to go sleep or have sex with somebody else that isn't their, their spouse. Okay, so these two people made a marriage covenant together. And listen, this is why this is so important. In Jewish culture, a marriage covenant was supposed to be a perfect word picture of God and his bride, God and his church, God and his people. So the Jews took it infinitely more important than a lot of us, especially in our culture, take it today, right? We kind of, we get married sometimes even haphazardly. There's divorce rates pretty high. In Jewish culture, this just wasn't the case because when you got married, you said, hey, everyone, I am going to love my wife in a picture of the way that God loves mankind. So if you would ever dare to commit a covenant to someone and say, look at us, we're a word picture of God's love and faithfulness, and then you slept with someone else outside the covenant, what did you just tell the whole world around you that, that God is like? God is unfaithful. God is unjust. God is wayward with his heart, wayward with his emotions. He's here today and gone tomorrow. He's not ever changing. He changes with the times. He follows his affections wherever it leads him. Him is the word that I use when I want all the lights to turn off. But track with me. I know it's really easy. Look, I don't know what's going on with the lights. Neither do you. I'm asking you, even those junior hires, no matter if they flicker on and off, I'm going to keep talking, okay? So every time they come on, you don't need to go, ha. Ah. And every time they go off, don't go, huh. Just, we're going to keep going, all right? Track with me. We're going to truck through because I don't know how often it's going to happen, okay? So it's a word picture, and it's a, now it's a broken word picture because someone says, look, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to disrupt the imagery of the beautiful covenant that God made with his people. So in Jewish culture, the penalty for adultery was that you would be taken out, taken out in front of the people, and they would publicly declare and publicly shame and say, this person covenanted in front of all of us that they would represent God in their holy communion of marriage. They didn't do it. We want to make that clear. Then, the, per the adulterer would be buried up to their waist in mud, and they would pack it in tightly so that they couldn't crawl out, and then the people of the town, the religious elite first and foremost, would get stones, and they would throw stones at the person until they were dead. They would get stoned to death. That's the way that it worked. So, in Jewish culture, in order to pronounce someone as a verified adulteress or adulterer, you needed two witnesses to catch you in the act. Which means a lot of theologians believe that here in this story, when an adulterous woman is brought before Jesus, that the religious elite set it up. This was not some random thing that happened. The religious elite, they might have even falsified the claim to bring this woman before Jesus. And now Jesus is in a conundrum. Let me tell you why. It was up to Rome to pronounce death sentences. And if you were not Rome and sentenced someone to death, you could be executed. Not good. However, in the Jewish custom, if someone is caught in adultery, their punishment is execution. So they take this woman who is caught in adultery, who's already embarrassed and shamed beyond belief, who might not even be guilty of this crime, but most likely she is. And so she's sitting in the deepest condemnation of her heart. They throw her before the perfect rabbi and they say, checkmate. If you say she can leave, you're guilty of breaking Jewish law, and you ought to be taken out. And if you say she must be executed, you'll break Roman law, and then you'll be executed yourself. Go ahead, Jesus. What's your call? 
oh, guys, Jesus is, is so incredible. Here's his response. Let's, let's just read it together, in, starting at verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You see, to the Pharisees, she's an object. But to Jesus, she's a daughter. And they're going to find quickly what happens when you only care about someone enough to accomplish a task, when they're just an agenda or a project for you, and when the God of the universe sees them as his daughter, we'll see who wins. But Jesus, this is so good. Okay, in Jeremiah chapter 17, there's a, there's a messianic prophecy that we see taking place here. Remember what we talked about the other day? Mashiach HaTavo. When Messiah comes, here's what will happen. One of the prophecies, and it's a little bit obscure, in Jeremiah 17, verse 13, says that when Messiah comes, he will write their sins in the dust of the earth. So here's what we see Jesus do. It's super bizarre. But, so he gets this question. Do we stone her? Do we set her free? Someone's going to kill you no matter what. Checkmate. Game is over. You are unequivocally screwed. You can't get out of this one. Sorry, Jesus. This is the end. And Jesus does this. He bends down and he starts to write in the dust with his finger. There's a lot of people who think different things about what he's doing. Personally, here's what I think. I think he's looking at the religious elite who have all picked up rocks to kill this woman. And I think he's looking into their souls and he knows, John chapter 2 tells us, he has the spirit without limits. He knows the thoughts of each one of those people. And I think he begins to write their sins that they've committed against God by name from oldest to youngest, from most pious, from most religious to least religious. And I think he starts writing what they've done wrong in their life in the dirt. So the first one up, the first one up, let's just say his name is Eliab. He's a Pharisee, highly accredited. And Jesus just starts to write, Eliab, lust, yesterday, 3.45 p.m. You lied to your wife this morning, 259. He just starts writing all of them. And it and <laughs> could you imagine if you were like, we got this guy, and he starts writing out your sins in the ground? And if you were a Pharisee, it meant that you had passed the three levels of, of becoming a rabbi. It meant that you were, which which meant you had to memorize the Old Testament. Okay? That means you had this memorized. Okay? Beit Zavir, Beit Midrash, Beit Talmud, you had to memorize the Old Testament. So when Jesus starts writing their sins in the dust of the earth, he's making a big claim. Once again, he's nodding along going, yeah, it's me. Mashiach Hatavo, Mashiach, Mashiach, right? Ah, it's me. And these, these old religious Pharisees do something really interesting. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he shows them his smorgasbord of what he's written in the earth. And he says, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. So it makes it really clear. Oh, he goes, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's stone her to death. Okay, we'll take turns. Um, the, the, the person who's never sinned before, you get to go first. And all their names are written right there. And they're like, yeah, so... Um, I'm probably just going to go home. <laughs> or maybe he's trying to stop them. Like, please stop writing. But all we know is that these men, one by one, drop 
what they're holding. Again, he stooped down and continued writing in the ground. <laughs> and this caused them to go, okay, 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 okay. At this, at what? What's the this? Verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, stooping and writing, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, but the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, oh, this is so good. Woman. Okay, so um, I don't recommend you calling your mom this, right? Don't go home and go, woman. <laughs> Camp was fine, right? But in this day and age, um, think about going to the South and having like an older man who has nothing but your care for you, like a grandpa figure in your life that goes, sister or Sweetie, honey, this is what Jesus, this is a very deeply loving term of endearment. Other, where, other places in scripture we see this, that Jesus uses this, is with his very own mother, woman. And then he asks her this question. I wonder if she's just wailing and screaming, knowing that her hour has come, knowing that her life is over. She's looking down. She's buried up to her waist, potentially, and she's thinking about how dumb it was to make this mistake, to live this life of sin, to do what she's doing. And then the Jewish rabbi gets close to her, and he just sees her feet, and he bends down, and he touches her shoulder, and he says, woman. And she looks up, and she's almost inconsolable, but he asks her a simple question. He says, where did they go? And she looks up and she looks around and it's just the two of them again. Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? No one, sir. Has no one condemned you? She responds, verse 11. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Who in Jesus' system, he said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. So who gets to go first? There's only one character in the history of mankind that could have picked up a rock and thrown it and been completely justified in doing so. His name was? Jesus. And he had something better in mind. Here's what I want you to get. What I want you to get is that Jesus would have been fully justified to pick up a rock and begin that process. He was righteous. But Jesus does something in that moment. Does he say this phrase? Is this very, it seems like nuance. It seems like not a big deal, but, but the, what, what he says is very important. Does Jesus say, you are not guilty? It wasn't that big of a deal. I don't get what the big fuss is about. None of that. He doesn't go, ah, you know, they, they, they over-exaggerate this. He doesn't say, you're not guilty. He doesn't say, not a big deal. And he doesn't say, everyone messes up every once in a while. Jesus fully retains the weight of the sin that that woman has committed. And yet, in the place of guilt... He didn't express pardon. He didn't say, I'm going to let this one go. Did he? Never in scripture does God ever look at sin and go, 
I'm going to let this one go. He can't. Listen to me. This is important. God's character disallows him to look at sin and turn his head the other direction. It's outside of his character. God, we always go, God can do whatever he wants. No, he can't. God cannot do whatever is possible. It's not true. First of all, God can't do nonsensical things. God can't make a four-sided triangle. God can't make a burrito so hot that he can't take a bite. God can't lift up a, make a rock so big that he can't lift it. These are nonsensical, ridiculous ideas. God doesn't participate in nonsense. He's a logical God. So he doesn't do nonsensical things, right? Secondly, God cannot go against his character. So people ask me this question all the time. Could Jesus have sinned when he was here on planet Earth? No, because Jesus is fully man and fully God. Can God sin? No, he can't do it. God never wakes up one morning and goes, you know what, today I'm going to lie a lot. You know, you know, today, what is it, Saturday? Today's going to be a great day to punch an orphan just for the fun of it. Like, that's not, that's against, walk with me, that's against the character of God. So we often put God on trial. We haven't put God on trial. We often accuse God for doing things that we're actually asking him to stop participating in his very own character. He can't do it. We ask him, why can't God just save all, why can't God just let all people be saved? Because it would be going against his character. His character necessitates justice. He can't do that. It's outside of his character. You want to know what's so powerful about the fact that God's character, he always abides by it? Our God is a loving God. Our God is a forgiving God. Our God is a God who sees. Our God is a God who remembers. Our God is faithful to his promises. Our God knows you, loves you, made you, created you, walks with you, dwells with you, cries with you, weeps with you. And he never stops. He doesn't get tired or bored. It's not monotonous for him. The character of God is always consistent, which means that when you and I go to him in prayer and we, Hebrews 4, approach his throne of grace with confidence, we can do so knowing we never meet a God where we are repentant of our sin and say, God, would you forgive me? And he's all, no, not today. I'm over it. Because he's always consistent with his character which means he always responds as a loving father because he is a loving father. And I'm a loving father, for sure, to my kids, but my character is often inconsistent. Do I want to be a good dad? Yeah. Do I blow it all the time? You better dang well believe I do. I am, I've told you already, I'm a dumpster fire. Sometimes when my kids come to me with repentance because they've spilled a bowl of milk, I go, you know what? I bet it was a mistake. And a lot of times, I drop kick them and I go, you have to stop spilling stuff. I don't actually drop kick my kids, right? <laughs> CBS. Um, I want to be consistent in my character. I want to be like God. I want to be holy like he is holy. I want to be perfect like he is perfect, but I'm just not. He is. He's always consistent in his character. And so when he looks at this woman, he doesn't say, your sin's not a big deal. I'm going to look the other way. I'm going to let this one go. Here's what I believe. I believe in that, in that moment, Jesus says this phrase, then neither do I condemn you. doesn't mean you're not guilty. It means that I, the judge, will not be carrying out your sentence on you. 
you no longer stand condemned. Are you guilty? Yes. Do you deserve the punishment of death? Yes. But I, the judge, do not condemn you. Your, the price for your sin and adultery will be paid, but not by you. I believe in that moment Jesus is actually taking her sin and he puts it on his back and he continues his walk to the cross to pay the price. Only Jesus can say, I forgive your sins, I do not condemn you, because his plan in the fullness of God's timing is to go to a cross, and when that, those soldiers beat him to that tree and press that crown of thorns in his head, the adulteress's sins are pinned to his back as well, and she has now been forgiven. Jesus, knowing what he's going to do, knowing his resurrection, and knowing her sorry, and knowing her desire to repent and be forgiven, he puts her sin on his back and says, I'll pay this one. He never says it will go unpaid. He never says there is no payment. He never says it's a lot to pay, but your neighbor pays a lot more. Those are all trash theology responses. He says, you, your payment will be paid in full, but I'm going to do it. Tonight, we're going to talk about three lies. I want you to write these down, and I want you to talk about them. Really, I want you guys to understand, I really feel like my job the, the small group leaders, the counselors, the youth pastors who have brought you here, your junior counselors, those guys, are, those guys are the ones that I want you to be connecting with, okay? I really think that my job is to tee up conversations for you to have in, in cabin time. When God invented church, he never went, this is what I see, 400 pe people facing one way and one dude facing the other way, right? He pictured circles. He pictured groups of people that are caring for one another and loving one another. I want to tee up conversations, but I want you guys to have these conversations in cabin time. And I have seen and heard the conversations, getting to visit some of your cabins even, and get to explore with you some of these concepts. And I want you to keep doing that. That is where the life change is going to occur. I want to tee up conversations that you're going to have later. And I'm going to do that by giving you three lies that are the most pervasive and common lies about sin that we believe that I think a lot of us in this room actually fall into. Imagine going to a doctor and you have cancer. That doctor looks at your skin and understands that if this doesn't get taken care of, you will die. If the doctor looks at your skin and goes, well, that would be really uncomfortable. That would be really awkward to tell them that they need all these surgeries and need all this help. It might cost them a lot. It might really hurt their family. It might make them scared. It might cause all these things. So the doctor, instead of showing and declaring the diagnosis, which needs to be treated, instead tucks it away, sits on it, buries it, and goes, you'll be fine, lollipop. You would properly be able to sue that doctor for malpractice. Do you want to know why? Because they hid the truth of what could make you better. I'm not going to do that. It is a good doctor that walks in and says, here's your problem and here's your solution. If this doesn't change, your result isn't going to change. If you don't eradicate this, this isn't going to happen. And friend, if you've got cancer and you plan on eradicating it yourself, that's not going to go super well. You need external help. You need an outside solution. See, your cancer problem comes from inside. Your sin problem was perpetuated and created by you. You're not going to fix it. That makes no sense. You're going to go back to the person who created the problem to offer yourself a solution? My hope is, like a loving doctor, to diagnose a sin problem in your life to give you an answer on how it can be eradicated, and then to give you the option as the patient 
to decide what course of action you want to take. Y'all, some people can live a long time with cancer. And they can tuck it away and they can put band-aids on it and not worry about it and they'll be fine. But the Bible talks about that, that sin being the same thing, like a cancer that eats us from the inside out. It festers it's like an infection that grows and spreads until it consumes the whole self. And when that happens, the whole idea of Jesus and the cross will be so foreign and foolish to you that you will never turn from your life of sin. That's what the book of James says. We start by going, I'm going to dabble in sin. Then we fall in the deep end. And then we think to ourselves, oh, don't worry, I'll get out. But then we start to like the temperature of the water. Then our friends go, bro, get out. You're in sin. And we're like, it's nice in here. (laughs) I love it. And my hope is that your heart right now is not in that place where you don't even want to have a conversation about what God can do with your heart. My prayer is that God would turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh to have a real conversation about the sin that's in all of our hearts, including mine. Here's the three things, I think, that are the biggest lies when it comes to sin. Do I have a podium? Yes, okay. Write this down, I'm gonna get my podium. The first one is this. I am a good person. Not me, you speak up of yourself. But write down on your paper, the first lie that we tend to believe in our culture Again, our whole theme is on truth. One of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves in our culture is, I'm essentially a good person, okay? A, a poll that was done in the early 2010s showed that the majority of American, Americans, when asked if they think they're going to heaven, a strong, greater than 90% said yes. When asked why, more than four out of five said, because I'm a good person. And that means that some of you sitting here are going, and <laughs> what's the problem with that? It's totally unbiblical. Again and again, people are like, well, you know, Christianity is there to give you a good set of morals. Bro, have you read the text? <laughs> Jesus is dying on a cross next to two thieves who are guilty for capital punishment of their crime. The thief looks over at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus' response is this, I surely tell you today you'll be with me in paradise. Was he a good person? (laughs) In the 11th hour, he put his faith in the right place and he was saved. That guy was not a good person. Conversely, this world right now and in history's gone is chock full of people who have helped to cure diseases, who have given much money to the poor, have done a lot of great things. But if they don't find their hope in Jesus, they will not be saved. Period. That's just what the Bible teaches. We say that we're essentially a good person. I want you guys to see this for yourself. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to the book of Romans. The book of Romans chapter 3. I want you guys to see this, and I don't want you to think that I'm making this up. But I also don't want you to sit there as a patient where the doctor is saying, this isn't going well, and you're going, I think I'll be okay. Here's what the Bible says. The book of Romans. If you're in John, it's two books to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, which is short for the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the One Sent by Jesus. Acts, and then Romans. This letter is written by Paul to a group in Rome to tell them how to be saved. And chapter 3 is Paul telling them, guys, you got a bad court case. If you think you're going to get to heaven based on your own merit, bro, you got a bad court case. It's not going well for you. Here's what he writes. Here's why this is going to offend some of us. 
Because if we asked our moms or we asked our dads, right, you ask your mom, is, is your son or daughter a good person? They're going to go, oh, the best. Well, here's the problem. Your mom's not good either, okay? She might be loving. She might be kind, all those different things. But biblically speaking, she's not good. She's marred. She's broken. She, and the, the next chapter after Jesus um, frees the woman caught in adultery, the very next thing that Jesus does is he talks about judgment. And here's what he says, and I'm not mincing words. He says, when I judge, I'm a good judge. But you judge by human standards, which means you shouldn't be judging anyone because you don't even understand what good or bad is. That's what God says. So before we sit there and go, well, I think I'm essentially a good person, it doesn't really matter what we think about ourselves. It matters what God thinks about us. Listen to this. On the day that you die, you will meet God face to face. If there was a script or if there was a transcript of that conversation, you wouldn't even have a word bubble. You don't get to speak. In every conversation, at the end of the world, when someone meets Jesus face to face and they have a conversation, the one on trial is silent. The question isn't, do you know God? The question to Jesus is, do you know them? Are they your son? Are they your daughter? Did they surrender their life to you? Are they found in you? Did they remain in you? Was there hope in you? Was there trust in you? Did you take away their sin? Did you die on the cross for their sin? And the accused, you and me, will stand silent. And we will either watch Jesus go, who's that? You're either child or you're my enemy, and you're not my child. Away from me. It says in the scriptures, Jesus' response to the majority of all people who die will be away from me. I don't know who you are. And they will spend an eternity apart from God, an eternal separation that hell dictates, that, that the Bible dictates a place called hell. The majority of all mankind. Or, on trial, one day, when I see God face to face, the reason I can say this with confidence is because the Bible gives me confidence. It doesn't, it doesn't trip us up and make us every day figure out, am I saved today, am I not saved today? The Bible makes it clear. If we give our lives to him, if we surrender everything to him, if we receive what he has done on the cross for our sins, we will be saved. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which means, on that day where I see God face to face, I will stand as a silent party. And my sins will be laid out in front of me. And it, they were going to be long, man, long, long, long. Everything I've ever done, every bad thing I've ever thought, every sin I've ever committed, everything, ever. That's lust, that's lying, that's cheating, that's stealing, that's... And God's going to look at me and say, you're guilty. And your punishment is, and in that moment, Jesus is going to step in front of me and go, I got it. That's my son. I paid for him. He's good. He's one of us. He's got our same blood, our same DNA. That's my son. He's good. There's only two options. Either Jesus goes, who are you? Or Jesus goes, son, daughter, come in and find rest. Two options. So we don't get to make our case. We don't get to stand in front of God and go, all right, so I know how this system works. But if you think about it, if you really... God, are you listening? Okay. If you really think about it, I was a pretty good person, right? Like, remember that soccer team I was on? Everyone always said that one word, and I was like, I, tried, I did it like, what, twice? 77 times? It was like, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, those other guys were doing like 140. I was like, half. That's crazy. 
So anyways, can I like come in and stuff, you know? You don't speak. The question to Jesus is, did you know him? Is that your son? Did you pay the price for their sins? That's it. So we can't go, well, I'll make my case. I'm a pretty good person. Here's the Bible says. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. For it is written, there is no one that is right with God, not even one. That's what the word righteous means. But don't, don't, let, don't let that confuse you. Righteous means to be right with God. That means that the war between you and God is settled. It means that you and God are good. No problems, no beef, no enmity, no issues. You guys are square. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And when they open their mouths, their throats are like graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is Pretty accusatory, right? Not a lot of room for, okay, so what you're saying, right? You hear that and you're like, okay, so are we good? You're not. Listen, if you're new to this conversation and you don't know Jesus, you and him, you're not homies, you're not good, you're not tight, you're not chill, and you're not neutral. You are an enemy of the God of the universe, who has a character so specific that he demands justice for the sin and the treason that we've committed. Back in medieval times, what was the punishment for treason? In God's system, the punishment for treason is it's the same. And the book of James tells us this. If you are guilty in one thing that you've done, if you're guilty in breaking one part of the law, you're guilty in breaking the whole thing. So you think to yourself, I'm not a murderer. I've never committed genocide. I'm not guilty of all those things. Biblically speaking, you absolutely are. Because every sin is a rebellion, a high-handed sin against the perfect and holy God. The first thing we must understand is we're not good people. We're not. You're not born good. You're not messed up by society. You were born messed up. So the Bible says, into iniquity I was born in my mother's womb. The Bible says, I need salvation. I need help from the day I'm born. I need a solution. I'm not good. I'm not going to make it on my own. That's number one. Number two is this. If we, if we earnestly seek God, no matter what we call it, or if we seek to be a good person, if we try really hard, it's, it's this idea. Ultimately, all paths lead to God. If I just try to be a good person, or if I find truth in another belief system or another religion or whatever it is, like there's people all around the world who worship other gods, right? They might call them Buddha, or they might read like the Bhagavad Gita or the, the Sumerian epics. They're in the New Age or whatever it is. But if they're trying to seek God, they're just confused. Or if they're just trying to be a good person, but they don't really understand who Jesus is or what he did or why he came or that he died and that they surrendered their life to him. If they're just trying hard, though, then they'll go to heaven. Here's the issue with that. That would be beautiful. It would be so beautiful if every single religious belief system didn't 100% contradict each other, okay? We ask the question, what is truth? 
Jesus stands up in John 14, verse 6, and he says this phrase, remarkably offensive. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, if you believe in anything other than Christianity, the problem is that Christianity says you're not in. Jesus doesn't make a way for that. He says, no, you only come to the Father through me. Again, we've got a doctor giving a diagnosis and a solution. The only way you're saved is through me. Why does he say it so boldly? Because even now, even that he said it boldly, many of us in this room will grow up and believe that we can find Jesus and find our way to heaven through a different belief system. Jesus doesn't mince words. You will not make it if it's not through Jesus. Let me show you a little bit what, what I mean by this. You go, well, all belief systems. Are you really telling me that, that everyone in, in, in Islam, everyone in Mormonism, everyone who doesn't, everyone, are you really telling me that they're all apart from God? Absolutely. Let me tell you why. They don't agree with each other on the most basic thing that we believe. We believe that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin and was raised back to life, giving us the power over life as his children. Yes? Okay. Mormons believe that Jesus is a brother of Satan who is actually descendant from God, not God himself, and there's an infinite number of gods out in the universe, and you yourself can become God if you try hard enough. When Jesus died on the cross, he took away the original sin that we had as people, and if you do a whole bunch of good works as far as you can, Jesus will take care of the rest from what he did on the cross, but he is not divine. He is not God himself. There are an infinite multiplicity of gods, and that is what Mormonism believes. In just two belief systems, we're not even talking about the same kind of idea. That's not Jesus. Islam believes that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He was going to die on the cross, but then Allah provided a substitute and sent a guy who looked like Jesus to die in his place, and that's the guy that died, and Jesus never really died. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus did not raise back from body, but only raised back in spirit, that Jesus is not God of the universe. He is the begotten son of God, and he is not God himself. He is the archangel Michael who was sent to planet Earth, and he came, and he died, and he was a really powerful, mighty God, but he was not the God, and when he came back to life, he only did so in spirit, not in body. Atheism believes this guy died and he's still dead, <laughs> right? Like, you can co we can coexist and love each other as human beings, but the ideas don't coexist at all. They are completely and totally against one another. And Christianity just steps right out there and says, oh, well, might as well tell the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any other system is broken. It's mutilated. It's off. No one comes to the Father but through me. And how do you come to the Father? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. You don't do anything. Not by works so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do his will. Okay? All paths lead to God. Let me show you one more analogy before we put that one to bed. I hope you can already see it's a ridiculous concept. It doesn't check out in the world of logic at all. Let me give you another analogy just to kind of set it home. Imagine right now that, don't freak out. I know it's like you're going to want to, but just walk with me because I want to get through this, okay? Imagine if this tent caught on fire, right? And, and you have to, I know it's going to take some imagination, but imagine there's doors all around. There's like openable doors everywhere, not like flaps that you can just like push your way out of. So we're in a closed room right now, and there's doors all, all around the place. And the room starts on fire. And we quickly understand someone yells out, oh, the doors are locked. And we're, we have no clue what to do. There's only one door that you can get out of, but it's too small for any normal-sized person to get through. You would need a very small child to get through it. The problem is that door 
is only big enough for about a three-year-old to get through, and inside of it is a button that you can push. And that button, when pushed, opens a sprinkler system, but it also shuts the door, and whoever pushes the button is killed. And you look around, and you go, well, Chris, what are we going to do? You start to freak out. It's getting hotter. We don't really know what's going to happen, but we know that we're doomed if we don't do something. And as we look around, you understand what I understand. There's only one person in this room who could do that. I've got a three-year-old. I've got a two-year-old named Leonidas. And you look at him, and then you look at me. And I look at you, and I look at him. And we all think the same thing. And you look at me, and you think to yourself, I would never ask you to do that. And I said, no, you don't need to. So I bring Leonidas up, and I walk him over to what he needs to do. And I said, Bubba, remember we talked about superheroes, how they need to be strong? If I need to be strong right now, here's what's going to happen. Trying to keep his eye contact. He's getting freaked out. He sees the panic in everyone's eyes, but I had this conversation with him. Leo, I love you more than life itself, and with that, I need you to trust me. This is going to be our last conversation, so listen to my words. I love you more than anything, and Jesus loves you. I need you to accomplish something to save all these people. Remember we talked about loving them? We love them so much. I need you to go in this room and push this button, and Bob, it's going to be really uncomfortable, but right now it's time to be a superhero for all these people because we have no other solution, friend. You give him a big hug, and it's hard. It's difficult. It's this really intense emotional moment. And everyone in the audience knows you understand this guy is giving up everything and this child is going to experience the most intense torment in order to save me. And he goes into the room and he pushes the button and you can just hear the bellowing screams of what he's undergoing, but you know it's the only solution. It gets quiet, the sprinklers come on and all the fire is put out. And then someone in the back goes, this door was open too. Another person on this side pushes another door, and they go, well, this one was open too. Everyone grabs a door and pushes, and guess what? It wasn't true. They were all open. Everyone could have just walked out and been unharmed. And you all look at me, and you go, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry what you've gone through. And I go, no, not a big deal. I know that all those other routes were acceptable. I knew that all those other ways could work, but I wanted one more that included the sacrifice of my child. I just thought it would be kind of fun. Listen, if all paths lead to God, that's what Christianity is. Christianity is a God who knew Buddhism would work, who knew agnosticism would work, who knew that Mormonism would work, who knew that Islam would work, who knew that trying hard would work, that knew that crystals would save you, that knew all these things, but instead said, I want one more that involves the death of my only son. You see, he moves from loving father to sadistic, evil, dictator, child abuser, like that. It only makes sense that he's a loving God if it was the only way to save. And that's the truth. The truth is the doors remain locked. The fire is put out because the loving father gave up his son so that we could be saved. All paths lead to God. Doesn't check out logically. It doesn't check out emotionally. It doesn't check out philosophically. And it doesn't check out theologically. It is a completely debunked idea. If you think that, stop thinking that. It's false. Lastly, that's Leonidas right now. <laughs> Lastly is this concept that I want you to walk away with. A loving God would never send people to hell. A loving, this is what we say all the time, a loving God would never send people to hell. Track with me because this is one of the most forgotten theologies of our time. And it's the one that you're going to fight with more than anything else in your life. Because the God of our culture, modern America, is comfort and peace and everyone not being offended. And this one's going to get you if you don't listen. 
The idea that a loving God would not send people to hell, does a, it, that sentence in and of itself is remarkably tainted. It's deceptive. It's, it's an evil sentence because it misunderstands everything about the character of God. First of all, you can't just call God a loving God. And secondly, you can't understand loving in terms of a, do you, ever, you know a parent, maybe you have a parent or you've seen a parent in someone's life who lets their kids do whatever they want whenever they want. If they want candy, they give it to them. They don't want to brush their teeth, you don't have to. If they have a poopy diaper and they, want it, they, they don't want to sit down and get it changed, let them run around. I don't really care. If it comes to manners, forget them. If it comes to rules, doesn't matter. If it comes to being, doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want whenever they want. Is that a loving parent? How do you know that? Because you understand. The Bible says we're ingrained with this idea that God disciplines those that he loves. A loving father disciplines those that he loves. And while we as children might push back and go, that hurt, we know it's because they love us. In the same way, to say God is a loving father, but that he doesn't have rules or jurisdictions or justice in his character or holiness is to pick one aspect of God and forget that God's character is this beautiful, complete picture, and you can't take one part out of it and say, this is all he is. He is all of them all the time simultaneously. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. God actually invented hell to punish Satan and his demons. What did they do? They rebelled against God. It's Satan and his demons who wanted nothing to do with God. God actually, in his mercy, created a place for them void of his presence where they could go for an eternity and not be with him. The problem is, when you get rid of God, you get rid of God's common grace. You see, right now, God, we don't even see him, but he's holding up our universe. He sustains it. He gives us what we call common grace. We're able to have fun and enjoy each other and have a reasonable temperature of a room. We can laugh and play and, and we can have hope and encouragement. That's actually all borrowed from God. Imagine a place now where God is not. Comfort. Peace, hope, encouragement, laughter, friendship, relationship, all those things would be totally gone. That's what hell is. Hell is a place for everyone who says, I want nothing to do with you, God. God says, then I've made a place for you to stay in that position forever. See, God doesn't send people to hell. We willingly go. Heaven is a place where God is. We enjoy him. We're with him. We experience him. And we on this earth look at him and go, God, I can't wait to be with you forever. And God grants us the gift of heaven by surrendering our sins. He brings us with him for eternity. And those who on earth right now go, forget God. I want nothing to do with you. I want to live my own life. God says, in fact, I'll let you do that forever. If that's the way that you want to live, I'll let you live that way forever. Ever. That's what hell is. Hell is a place void of God. But when you're actually void of God, you're void of everything that comes along with him. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Everything that we enjoy as a world is all, every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights. That's what the Bible tells us. So in a very real way, God doesn't send people to hell. We who want nothing to do with God, God's made a place for us to remain in that position forever. And remember when we say a loving God would never send good people to hell? What do we say about good people? <laughs> That's none of us. There's only been one good person ever. His name was Jesus, and he willingly died on the cross for our sins. Tonight's left heavy. Tomorrow night's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the solution to our sin problem. But tonight just kind of it sits on you like heavy, like an elephant sitting on your chest. It's just, it's the sit and sin to think about I'm an enemy of the God of the universe? 
I'm not right with him. I'm not good in his eyes. I, I don't seek him. I don't do good. I am not good. I'm not a child of God. I am not with him. I am not guaranteed heaven because I'm a good person. I'm not guaranteed heaven because I'm trying. I'm not guaranteed heaven because I don't swear or I don't have sex before marriage. That's not why people go to heaven. Like a doctor, I just want you to know the truth. I want you to ruminate on it. I want you to think about it. I want you to process it. I want you to open the text of Scripture. Don't get into your cabin time and go, well, I think, open the Bible, and what does God say about you? What does he say about your position? Because even the hard truths of Scripture is actually an invitation of God's love for us, saying, I've told you what's difficult. I've told you the hard thing because I want you to come near. I want you to come close. You are enemy. I want to know you as son. I want to know you as daughter. And I have made a way in my loving kindness for you. I've made a way for you to move from an object of wrath into an object of my grace and love. And it is to respond to the gracious gift of the gospel that I've given you that we'll talk about tomorrow night. But tonight, sit in those lies. Where have those trickled into your heart and deceived ourselves? Do we just think, I'm a good person, I'll be fine? Do we think to ourselves, all paths lead to God, so I think I'm kosher, I think I'm good with it? Or do we think, I think ultimately God will let everything go? Remember the woman caught in adultery. He never pardons it. He never says your guilt is, is no more. He says, I'll take this one. I do not condemn you, for I will undergo the condemnation that you deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus became sin who knew no sin, that we could become his righteousness. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as you say in the text of the scriptures, right now you're sending the Holy Spirit to permeate the hearts of every last junior higher in this room. That you hope their, their heart is moving from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And Lord, you, we know that you're faithful. That if right now in our hearts we're praying, Jesus, show me the weight of my sin. Show me the way that you see it. Show me the areas in my life that I haven't surrendered to you. Show me the sin of my heart. Show me the idolatry. Show me the things that I worship instead of you. Teach me how wretched I am. Not to sit there and to sit in my shame or condemnation, but so that I recognize my need for a Savior. God, you tell us in the text, the law is there for us to cry for help. Lord, would you put the weight of the law on all of our hearts that we might respond and cry for help. And we know, as the psalm tells us, as we cry out, you hear our cry, you turn to us, you reach down, you pull us out from the miry pit and set our feet on solid rock, on yourself. And God, the gospel's coming tomorrow. But tonight, we sit and we stew in the pain and brokenness of our fallen condition. Lord, have mercy on us. In your name we pray. Amen.